Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Russell Storer, and I'm the curatorial manager of Asian and Pacific art here at the Queensland Art Gallery, Gallery of Modern Art. First of all, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet tonight. I'd also like to acknowledge distinguished guests, Mr. Shinsuku Mashida, the Deputy Consul General, and Mr. Shusaku Hiroshima, Cultural Consul, with the Consulate General of Japan in Brisbane, Mr. Derek Brown, State Director, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and Professor Andrew O'Neill, Director of the Griffith Asia Institute at Griffith University. I'd like to offer apologies on behalf of Mrs. Jane Prentice, MP, Member for Ryan, Ms. Lenine Ford, Chancellor, Professor O'Connor, Vice-Chancellor and President, Griffith University, Tony Elwood, Director, Queensland Art Gallery, and Sahanya Rafael, Deputy Director. Thank you for joining us this evening for our third Perspectives Asia for this year. Perspectives Asia is a joint initiative of the Queensland Art Gallery and the Griffith Asia Institute and has been running now since 2005. The partnership with Griffith is a very important one for the gallery and Perspectives Asia has become a substantial forum to hear from leading figures engaged in the field of Asian and Pacific politics, society and culture about issues of current significance. Tonight is no exception and we're delighted to be able to present a lecture by Greg Earle. Greg is the Asia Pacific editor and national affairs editor of the Australian Financial Review. For over 20 years, he's worked as a business and political reporter and editor in Australia, Asia and North America. He was the AFR's Tokyo-based Japan and correspondent in 2005-2006 and was the Jakarta-based correspondent on Southeast Asia from 1994 to 1999. He's also worked as a political and business reporter in Australia, opinion page editor, and was the Australian Financial Review's deputy editor in charge of national and international news in 2002 to 2004. Greg's lecture tonight is titled From Bahasa to Hangul, Deciphering Modern Asia, and will discuss two of Australia's most important strategic, diplomatic and economic partners, Indonesia and South Korea. While there's substantial media focus, of course, on China, India and Japan, these two rising powers, who currently share middle power status with Australia, who knows for how long, are undergoing complex transformations, having emerged from military regimes in the 1980s and 1990s, to become vigorous and outward-looking democracies. Their experiences offer enormous amount of insight into the changing nature of Asia today. And Greg's long experience in watching these nations closely will offer us plenty to th consider tonight. Please join me in welcoming Greg Earl. A decade ago, when I was living in Jakarta, a uh, Korean um, man used to advertise in the local newspapers and um, uh, that he'd brought in a shipment of Korean furniture and he'd, he'd rent some cheap space and try and sell it off to the local expat community. This intrigued me for a while because um, in Jakarta at the time, and I met a couple of uh, my fellow uh, Jakarta expats here just earlier, surprisingly enough, but the typical well-housed expat uh, loaded up on, on heavy teak Japanese furniture and it was, um, it was commonplace to hear that they had gone back to Australia and it just wouldn't fit into their house. So now, now I, I succumbed to that a little bit, but I must say I think my purchases stood the test of time. But I developed a bit of a passing acquaintance with the Korean um, man who was a bit of a lost soul in, in Jakarta. And, um, and uh, finally I bought one of his lighter Korean uh, cabinets. They're known as a, a jang in, in Korea. They're very good if you move around a lot like I have because they've apart and they're very light. Um, now um, I wasn't very familiar with um, 
North Asian furniture styles, but, but nonetheless I was very happy with my purchase and I took it home with me along with my Javanese furniture. But a few years later I, I moved to Japan and I started travelling to, to Korea. And it was in my, my first visit to Incheon Airport, which is one of the, the great uh, triumphs of, of modern Korea, of one of the world's best airports, um, and it's a pleasure to, 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 to spend time there. But on my first visit, I walked along a long gallery of Korean furniture on the way to the immigration um, check-in counter, uh, which is very, very well documented, and I found a piece of furniture just like mine. That's not that piece, that's just uh, that's from Google a few days ago. But, um, <laughs> Uh, I didn't have a chance to photograph mine, but anyway, this looks a bit better. But um, uh, and anyway, I felt I'd sort of step back um, a little bit in, in, in time to an older life in Jakarta. Now, I actually did that same uh, walk just a few weeks ago with this idea of this lecture, just a, an idea in, in my email, actually, um, thanks to Natasha and, uh, and Andrew. But um, so now, this, that's really just a long and obscure sort of introduction to make the point that connecting um, Hangul and Bahasa, as of this, this is a strange title for this lecture. Um, uh, is a difficult thing to do, and um, and hasn't been straight. It's not straightforward, and for me, it's been happenstance. For example, my interest in Asia started studying when I was a, a, at high school in rural Victoria, and I, I started studying Indonesian, um, which has stayed with me now for a long time. But um, uh, curiously, I now have a little Korean niece uh, adopted by my uh, sister who lives just near where I used to live and um, no one else in the family has any connection with Korea so I have a sort of have a particular um, affinity with, with my little niece and, um, and, and I'm really blown away by the fact that she's going to a rural high school near where I went to school and she's a star Indonesian student so um, yeah. Um, now but getting to more sort of serious matters, I'm also a journalist and, and as um, it's been, which has been described as the, um, the, the sort of practice or the art of um, immersing yourself in one imponderable subject after another and then passing yourself off as an expert. Now, now that involves a few shortcuts, um, and, and uh, I don't want to sort of uh, reveal them all tonight, but they involve things like um, ringing up people like Andrew, you know, getting a few ide good ideas and then you know, writing them up with a sort of veneer of expertise and then moving on to something else. But, so you, but I find you need to find, you need to have a few sort of simple ways of, of getting ahead around complex issues and um, I spend most of my time in the office these days managing other people, not really travelling around Asia. So I, um, I've, I've developed a, a simple benchmark which I'm sort of going to now outline tonight. Um, it's something other time poor people could perhaps do if they want to try and stay abreast of the culturally, economically and politically changing, um, the, the political, cultural and economic change across uh, Asia, which is becoming more important, of course, for Australia, as we all know. Now, South Korea and Indonesia are big and important countries in their own right, but, but my point here tonight is that I think between them, they're dealing with most of the key challenges which other Asian nations are also having to deal with. These are the challenges that will sort of make or break the whole idea of Asia becoming half of the world's, returning to half of the world's economy and becoming the centre of world affairs. So I think following how these two, for, for want of a better description, an, an odd couple really, um, deal with these issues, can provide a, a lot of insight into how the rest of the region is, is also tracking and handling these issues. Now, of course, they're not the big countries. They're not the really important countries which can sort of blow up the whole project single-handedly. China, India, Japan, they're clearly the biggest markets. Um, they're the big security enforcers, big security threats, whatever, however you want to characterise them. 
Um, they're far bigger cultural forces. I'm, I'm not sort of suggesting they're not important at all. Um, but I think one of the really interesting and not really fully appreciated challenges for the federal government in the Asian Century White Paper, which is coming up in um, uh, less than two months, is really going to be how to sort of balance the, the, the medium countries like Indonesia and Korea against those big countries that are clearly the, the major countries that Australia has to deal with. The other thing is that China, India and Japan, I think, don't provide such a model for the other, other countries in Asia to, to benchmark or follow. Um, I think Korea and Indonesia do in, in various ways. China is very much its own model. Japan, of course, was the model for, for economic development for many of the East Asian countries, but a lot's changed and in some respects it's perhaps not the clearest model anymore for, for the emerging countries that are coming along. Um, now, you know, other people, other people who have expertise in other countries might say that you can apply the same sort of thesis that I'm applying here tonight to other, other countries. You know, Thailand and Taiwan might, might come to mind. But, but I think Indonesia and Korea are also very important to Australia as, as diplomatic partners, which I'll come on Get, 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 move on to, and so uh, they have an additional importance to Australia. Now, now, to take this forward, I want to just look at three broad areas where these two countries, I think, have charted the way ahead for, for modern Asia in democracy, um, in demography, and in development or you know, economic development. Um, so, now, it was Samuel Huntington, the American political scientist, who, who said that if you, you can call a country a democracy, when it's made two consecutive peaceful changes of government by free elections. Now, Indonesia and Korea, I think the biggest and most successful examples of this process in Asia in the, in the last generation. They're not alone, of course. You know, as I mentioned before, Taiwan fits this sort of model quite well, of course, as well as do some other countries. Um, it's particularly a model for Chinese people in, in the world to think of in China and elsewhere. But, but Indonesia and Korea have institutionalised two very different democratic models out of what were once very harshly, um, very harsh authoritarian regimes. Now, since um, Ro Tae Wu's election as president of Korea in 1987, it's been through four presidential votes, which have seen power shift progressively from the right to the left with the election of Kim Dae-jung in 97, and then there were two left-wing leaders, and then it swung back to the right with the election of uh, Im Young-bak in 2007. Now, I think it's likely to stay uh, on that side of the political spectrum this year, where it seems highly likely to me that Park Geun-hwe will um, be the successful presidential candidate for what was the Grand National Party, which has now been renamed the Sunuri Party in what's a, a curious tradition of modern Korean politics, changing party names. Now, some people will say it is ironic that the daughter of the man who really built modern Korea, Park Chung-hee, um, it will be ironic that she becomes the, um, the, uh, the president. Um, this could be another curious case of this um, Asian dynastic political phenomenon where daughters ascend to the presidency and perhaps don't do much of a job. Gloria Arroyo in the Philippines and Megawati Sukarno-Putri in Indonesia come to mind. Now, I can talk more about Madam Park later if anyone's interested. Um, she just announced only two days ago that she was actually standing for, for election, so uh, things are moving along. But um, it's, it's little appreciated that if she wins the, the presidency this year, she will be the first female leader of a Confucian or North Asian country, however you want to characterise them, since the Dowager Empress in China. And I think that will be you know, quite a big and significant event in various respects. Now, recently I was talking to a, a fellow called 
Paik Nak Chong, who's um, a contemporary of King Kim Dae-jung and uh, an elder statesman of the Korean left, a man with a wonderful sense of his country's history. He says he thinks Korea has to go through three sort of shifts on the political spectrum before he'll regard it really genuinely as democracy. And uh, now he doesn't think that's going to happen this year, sadly. He's from the left, so it's not going to work in the way he thinks. But um, he thinks Madam Park will be a better president than, than the current President Lee. Now, while Korea's been slugging it out with the routines of democracy, presidential changes, party restructurings, division of power between the executive and the legislature, Japan's been struggling to break free from the liberal democratic sort of mold, straitjacket, whatever it's had since 1955. There was the brief loss of power in 1993 for the, for the LDP. The Democratic Party of Japan finally came to power in 2009, but has really struggled to deliver a sort of coherent policy approach. Um, decided courageously to increase consumption tax just recently, but that wasn't an original policy anyway. Now, but I think the lack of a healthy two-party two model in Japan has at least partly explained the, the sort of policy cul-de-sac the country's been in for quite a long time now over any number of issues from how to increase fertility in women, how to, how to manage trade reform, how to close down banks. Um, on the other hand, Korea's been the beneficiary of quite a ferocious debate amongst these changing parties as, as this process has, has gone on. Now jumping to Indonesia. Now there have been three presidents since the end of the Sahato Habibi uh, era in, in Indonesia um, when I was there working as a journalist. Abdurrahman Wahid was a moderate Muslim religious figure. Megawati Sukarno Putri is a sort of daughter of a president, a sort of secular nationalist sort of figure. Cecilio Bambang Yudhoyono, the current president, a general turned sort of centrist, moderate sort of politician. The transition from Wahid to Megawati was actually a parliamentary, parliamentary impeachment procedure, but there have been three democratic transfers of power, so it sort of meets the Huntington uh, um, um, benchmark. The parliament's been more messy, with all the presidents requiring a multi-party uh, coalition sort of situation to pass legislation. Um, and there's no two-party style of system in prospect. There's much still work in prospect. Money, politics and vote buying is becoming a problem. The sort of ultimate orientation of some of these parties is still very unclear. Um, many of the main players are really still um, hangovers from the Sahato era. Some people would say that we won't really have had a fully democratic evolution there until we see who replaces the stable, moderate, predictable uh, SBY in, in, um, in 2014. The change from another moderate uh, sort of um, military figure in Fidel Ramos in the Philippines to the erratic film star in Joseph Estrada is a bit of a worrying precedent for Indonesia. Um, but the fundamental thing is that neither um, the country, or this is neither Indonesia, all these parties um, have fragmented in the way that many people originally predicted would be the case when Sato fell. Um, there's corruption, but I think it's still understood that in Indonesia today very few people can really conduct themselves in business or politics without any prospect, without any fear that they might well become the subject of investigation or exposure for malpractice. Now, what happens in the courts and what happens with the jail sentences after that is, leaves a lot to be desired, but, 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 but there's been a fundamental change there in Indonesia. And compare it to the situation in its two most developed neighbouring countries. Um, Thailand, which has been in and out of democracy for decades, but has now been in a fundamental impasse for five years. 
basically about whether the Bangkok-based military and middle-class elites are prepared to cede power to, to rural, rising, increasingly wealthy, better educated rural people and the sort of new economic forces that surround in various ways the Taksin Shinawatra, who was the uh, Prime Minister. Um, in, in Malaysia is more interesting. The country this year is really on a, a knife edge over whether there's any possibility of breaking away from the United Malays national organisation dominated multi-ethnic party coalition that's governed for half a century. Now that's longer than any party has governed anywhere in the world in, in a reasonably democratic sort of environment. Um, now, contrary to some people, I've always maintained Malaysia is a democracy despite the Internal Security Act and despite the party-controlled media and only last night the um, Prime Minister uh, abolished the Sedition Act, actually. Um, uh, but I think it's been a democracy because there is vigorous and open debate within the constituent parties of the Barazan Nationale. But nonetheless, I think Indonesians can look on the contest this year between Prime Minister uh, Najib Razak in Malaysia and the opposition leader Anwar Ibrahim with a real sense of achievement with what they have managed to achieve over the last 10 years. Now this democratic process in Indonesia and Korea certainly hasn't been perfect. The conglomerates have too much influence on, on the uh, system in Korea. Um, you know, there's money politics problems in Indonesia, but I think they've managed to create two uh, models, sort of conventional uh, two-party model in Korea and this more um, uh, sort of culturally based multi-party system in Indonesia, which has now delivered at least two three free and fair changes of power in those two countries, despite the severe security threats of North Korea in the case of Korea and Islamic terrorism in the case of Indonesia, and amid severe economic upheaval. Um, now, just moving on to demography, um, the US economist Paul Krugman has this uh, neat sort of line that economic growth isn't, isn't uh, the productivity isn't, isn't everything in economic growth, but it's almost everything. In some ways you could apply a similar sort of argument to demography in, in Asia's growth in recent times. Um, rapid modern economic growth in many parts of the region has been associated with taking advantage of a demographic dividend. And uh, here it is for Korea over the last uh, 30 years in these demographic pyramids. Um, the, um, where, where basically the, um, the working age population has been growing faster than the dependent population boosting the economies. The ADB um, says that this has added about one percentage point to per capita growth in Indonesia, Korea, China and Vietnam over the past 30 years. The World Bank have said in its recent report about the, um, the region's um, progress that East Asia is currently facing the onset though of one of the most rapid demographic changes in history. Growth in the region has benefited from a growing in the size of the working age population. However, most of the region will see this demographic contribution to growth start to disappear over coming decades. Now, while um, Indonesia and Korea sort of have been on a similar sort of democratic trajectory. In, in demographics, they're, they're quite different. Korea is rapidly using up its demographic dividend faster than other countries at similar stages of development have. This reflects the collision of a very patriarchal, hierarchical um, work culture with a rapidly highly educated society in which women are just not having children. The Organisation of Economic Cooperation and Development has, has warned that um, Korea faces the most rapid population ageing amongst the members of this, this rich country club. While it now has the third youngest population in the group, on current trends it will have the second oldest by 2050. 
uh, mainly reflecting a birth rate of 1.2 children per woman, which is amongst the lowest in the world already. In fact, that's now lower than Japan, where there's been a slight improvement in, in, in fertility just in recent years. Um, the, uh, the dependency ratio in, in Korea as a share of the, um, the, uh, the, the working age group um, will become the third highest in the OECD on, on, the, on these trends. Uh, the working age population will peak in 2016 and then fall by more than a quarter by mid-century. The Korean Development Institute says that by the 2030s, Korea's growth rate will only be 2% compared with more than 4% in the last four years. Um, now, um, the OECD, uh, as always, has a sort of ready-made uh, prescription for, for fixing these problems, uh, which will sound quite familiar in even places like Australia. It says that Korea needs to cut the, what is the highest gender wage gap in the OECD. It needs to increase the available of affordable, high-quality childcare. It needs uh, to lengthen maternity leave from the current 90 days. And uh, it needs to introduce greater flexibility into um, what are the longest working hours in the uh, OECD. Now, this is all very logical, but these sort of prescriptions have been applied to more developed countries with you know, not very much success, as we know to some extent in Australia. But when I was in Korea recently, I met a, uh, a young woman um, who worked for the Trade Department, really very much a bureaucrat. Um, and she had just recently persuaded her husband to give up his job so she could take a posting actually in Vietnam, another rather patriarchal sort of society to, for a Korean young woman to go and promote Korean trade in. And she was uh, very happy. And uh, so now Koreans, so Koreans have got a demonstrated capacity for change as we've seen through their economic development. But uh, how fast they can make changes in these deeply cultural sort of areas is going to be very interesting to see. Indonesia, on the other hand, has a very different demographic um, profile and pyramid, and the change is, is, is there over the last 30 years. Um, it's actually on the cusp of what's seen as a classic demographic dividend, where basically due to family, partly due to family planning, uh, there's been a reduction in the size of the number of dependent children, uh, just as the working, the, there's a real bulge of young working age people coming on. Um, this has been going on for some time, but the real dividend is about to start happening in the next decade. Um, but this is only a favourable uh, demographic profile on the, uh, the, the right-hand side uh, if it can generate enough jobs to, uh, to sort of um, productively absorb all these new members of the workforce. Now, there are a lot of counterintuitive forces at work in Asia's demographic um, outlook. Singapore, for example, a rich country like Korea, is managing to defer its um, peak population for some decades, it seems, by accepting more, a lot more immigrants. Although only this week Singapore had a crackdown on foreign workers because there's a bit of a domestic backlash against so many foreigners, both uh, cheap foreigners from, from Indonesia and, and, and more wealthy expat foreigners at the same time. Um, China, despite being still quite a poor country per capita, is on track to hit its population peak in the late 2020s. In fact, only on Tuesday I was at ANU at their um, China update and there was a very senior demographer there. And he's um, actually now saying that China's fertility rate is possibly down towards the Korean levels. It's not really being properly acknowledged in China yet. And that China will hit this uh, point where its number of dependents is the same as the number of working age people next year which is a, a, a rapid transformation of China's demographic profile that's not really fully appreciated, I, I don't think. 
Um, even in Southeast Asia, Malaysia is uh, delaying its, um, its, um, its the point where it has a higher dependency ratio, whereas Thailand's well on the way to, to um, being in a similar situation to Korea and, and possibly China. Um, now, so Korea, the, which is the largest of the newly industrialised Asian countries, is at a point where um, it really has to get more of its growth from increasing workforce participation and, um, and perhaps accepting more immigrants. Also, as the regional country which is the highest number of young people in tertiary education, it faces what's now a very curious challenge of telling some of those ambi ambitious Korean students that they really should be doing trade training, that there's not enough jobs in Korea for highly qualified university trained um, people. And curiously, Korea has now turned to Germany to give it advice on how to produce more apprentices. And this is the country that keeps a list of which manufacturing industry it's now the, the, the biggest and the best in, from you know, shipbuilding, cars and so forth. But it just hasn't got the trained workforce um, because it's got this unbalanced education system. Now, Taiwan, Singapore face these sorts of challenges. Uh, you know, maybe China will surprisingly soon. And perhaps Japan will find that this old colony is able to come up with some answers to some of these problems uh, that Japan's been struggling with. Indonesia, on the other hand, is really under pressure to grow its economy um, at more than 7% a year because that's the level of growth it needs to uh, assume, uh, absorb all of those people in the sort of 20 to 24 sort of um, uh, age range on, on that pyramid. Um, but at the same time, it has to make sure those jobs aren't simply in really low-wage manufacturing because there are plenty of emerging countries, from Bangladesh to Vietnam, who are ready and able to compete at that sort of level of manufacturing. So this involves um, Indonesia really reforming its education system, accepting more foreign universities, accepting more foreign training um, advice. And that's something that it finds really hard to do. Um, uh, because uh, there's a real nationalistic thing about having too much foreign involvement in the education system. So I think once again, these two countries are really at the cutting edge of what's a huge regional challenge. The different approaches to, to dealing with population change will, will really, I think, significantly affect the way, um, will affect sort of the pecking order of wealth and power across the region as we proceed through to the middle of the century, the middle of the so expected, the predicted Asian century. Um, and there's a growing awareness of this around the region. I was just reading the Jakarta Post recently and there was a, one of the columnists, um, Bravanto Toto Sadamo, was questioning this whole idea that Indonesia is having a big economic renaissance. And he, he basically said that um, the failure of the Indonesia, the failure of the state in managing the silent but profound pressures from demography in Indonesia could lead to a massive disaster. So now moving on to, um, to economic, uh, to development, to economics. Uh, this is... Uh, slide shows Korea's changing economic growth over the um, last 30 years. Now, um, Korea and Indonesia are really on different sort of uh, economic development um, trajectories as well, but they have had some common patterns. Both of them followed the Japanese model of export-oriented low-wage manufacturing funded by foreign investment, nurtured by a low exchange rate, and, and, and uh, repressed sort of domestic demand. But they both face the need to evolve. Other countries, as I said, are snapping at their heels after following the same development model. And as these countries, Indonesia, Korea and so forth, become larger economies in the world in which Asia is a bigger part of the world economy, they can't really rely on exporting to the US and, and Europe so much anymore. Both of them experienced um, the depths of economic crisis um, due to having unbalanced economies back in the 1990s. And that was while they were both trying to undertake democratic evolutions.
Now, Korea's um, come through its two economic challenges you know, really remarkably well. Uh, it, it bit the bullet and closed banks and sold them off to foreigners after the Asian financial crisis. After the global financial crisis back a few years in, in, in 2008, it sort of embarked on a stimulus program that, that means it can sort of rival Wayne Swan's claims for being the economy that recovered fastest and, and survived the, the, the GFC um, best. Um, now, it's, um, it's been one of the fastest OECD countries um, over the last 10 years, with growth of about 4%. Um, its uh, per capita GDP has gone from about a third of the US um, 20 years ago to, to about two-thirds now. But like other members of the newly industrialised club, Taiwan, Singapore, etc., it needs to really shift into, more, into, into things like services. It needs to have more competition for its state-owned companies and its private oligopolies, the so-called Chaebol, that have distinguished its development so far. Um, it needs to improve um, the skills of its workforce. It perhaps even needs to develop more of a welfare system, a, a very you know, unusual thing for, for this sort of country, so that um, it, people have more confidence to, to, to consume and so that will boost domestic demand. Now, Korea's had a steady stream of actually fairly government-led sort of initiatives to do this sort of thing about trying to make itself a logistics hub in, in Asia, financial services hub. Um, they're all struggling to really pay off, but they keep coming, trying to come up with new things. It still is very highly dependent on exports, um, something that, as I said, Asian countries need to reduce. Um, but on the other hand, it has really managed to diversify its exports away from depending on the US and Europe to um, to the other uh, big developing countries, Mexico, Brazil and so forth, which has uh, been quite a, a good thing. I think some of its largest companies are showing signs of being more nimble than their Japanese counterparts in negotiating the changing world economy, competition from cheap, cheaper competitors, um, you know, how to set up offshore and those sorts of things. It's doing particularly well off the back of, back of the, uh, the, the Korea pop phenomenon, which is, uh, which is very, music that's very popular right across Asia by developing quite a significant video and film production industry which is aimed at the rest of Asia, not so much the rest of the world. This combines broadband technology, its technological skills which have been used in manufacturing, and I think really reflects the sort of quite edgy artistic culture amongst young Koreans. So that's the sort of area to watch to see whether Korea can really evolve. Now, moving on to Indonesia's economy, hopefully, yes. Indonesia's probably what might be called the retake-off point after what's been a really long and painful recovery from the late 1990s crisis, which just destroyed foreign confidence in Indonesia's economy, particularly here in Australia. It's being talked about as a better credential um, country to be the, uh, the I country in the BRICS these days rather than India, um, although I think the BRICS are perhaps losing their shine because I don't think they really have a great deal in common. But Indonesia has the really valuable or rare trifecta of being a, uh, having a good cheap supply of, of, of labour, which means it can beef up its manufacturing as, as say, China's labour costs rise. Um, it also has a big domestic market, so it's not supposed, as exposed to exports to uh, countries like the US and, and Europe as, say, a country like Malaysia. And it has resources wealth. It's back growing around 6%. It wants to get up to 7% to employ all those young workers perhaps get back to the 8% levels of the uh, 1990s. Um, if it can fix things like its infrastructure bottlenecks, um, its land, tenure law problems and, and corruption issues. But that trifecta um, brings with it quite a lot of risks. Um, it has cheap labour, but it needs to keep boosting the skills to stay ahead of even cheaper countries. Now, there's a really major debate going on inside the Indonesian government now about building more downstream industries to process more of the country's resource production and commodities and so forth. 
This is reflected in recent moves to make foreign miners sell down their investments unless they build some sort of reprocessing capacity. It's reflected in the recent pressure on the Australian cattle industry to invest more in in-country breeding and, and logistics and feedlots and that sort of thing in return for continuing the live cattle trade that was banned last year amid all the controversy. Now, reprocessing is a good way to employ some of those, uh, those, that, that bulging number of workers that we saw on the last slide. But the government needs to be careful it doesn't sort of scare away foreign investment by, um, by sort of choosing what sort of direct processing and, and wasting a lot of money on them. It's a really important moment in Indonesia's potential path to being one of the biggest, one of the, perhaps one of the top ten economies in the world by, by the 2040s. Last week, um, during SBY's visit to Australia, I was talking to um, Chatip Basri, who's the newly appointed investment minister. Now, he's one of the many sorry, Australian educated economists who are kicking around in the Indonesian government these days, like the vice president, Budiono, the former trade minister, and now the, uh, the, the uh, culture minister, Murray Pengestu. But uh, Hatib was um, really straddling the barbed wire fence between um, his, uh, his uh, rational economics education that he acquired here in Australia and the, uh, the intense domestic pressure to, to force foreign companies to build reprocessing facilities in Indonesia. Now, as we all know, Indonesia is also important in terms of climate change. It's got a big share of the world's forests and fisheries, makes it a key player in, in all the debates about environmental management and climate change around the world and in, in the region. Now, and as the less developed um, Asian member of the G20, as a dominant country in Southeast Asia, I think how Indonesia handles all of those, those economic climate change issues um, will have influences on other countries around the region, the countries like Burma and, and, uh, and Vietnam, as they sort of face the same challenges. But I also try to look at the companies in, in some of these countries to see what they might say about what's really happening. And just to, uh, and in Korea, I think, um, you can't go past Samsung Electronics and POSCO to see Korea's modernisation in, in a sort of micro, really microeconomic sort of form. Um, Samsung's now uh, sort of outdoing some of the Japanese television makers, the Finnish and American mobile phone companies. Um, its next frontier is Apple. But it's also an old conglomerate, a family-controlled company with a lot of old political baggage. So you can do a lot worse than watch how it embraces sort of modern corporate management and, and accepts more competition in, in the domestic economy to see really how Korea will evolve. POSCO, on the other hand, uh, it, it, was, it, was, it, is, or it was once Australia's biggest um, customer for iron ore and, and coal. It's a ferociously competitive, efficient global company and it's now branching out into environmental products like LED lights and batteries and so forth. But it's a former state-owned company and there's a lot of resistance to allowing foreign investment in it. So once again, it's a real test for how Korea is going to modernise. But I also think those two companies are models for other companies around Asia that are facing those sorts of challenges. Indonesia doesn't have those flagships, but once again, it's not really recognised that it is producing some modern companies. Now, everyone's probably heard of Samsung. You might even have a Samsung product with you. But can anyone nominate what Indonesia's biggest brand name is? Well, it's, it's not sexy like Samsung. And it's no, no, well, it's, it's probably its biggest company. It's a big brand name, but no, it's the brand, the Indonesian brand name you can find all around the world, probably in the supermarkets down, down here in Brisbane. Indomie, in, 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 yeah. It's just, you know, rice, processed rice um, made by Indofood. Now, um, but it's even made in Africa. It's been made in Africa now since 1995 in Nigeria. It's a, it's a popular product all through Africa. Now, you know, it's, it's not a sexy product like a Samsung 
tablet or so forth. But um, it's what Indonesia needs to do. You know, process its, its commodities in a, in a modest sort of way without a lot of fancy government supported high technology sort of investment. It's also interesting because it was part of the Salim Group, which was owned until uh, I think three weeks ago by, by Sodomo Salim, who, who died. And um, he was once uh, President Suharto's closest Chinese business crony. Now, the other Indonesian company I think is really interesting to look at is Astra International. It's a car making company which is now moving from cars into, very, into transport and toll roads, which is, uh, I'm not sure whether that's upstream or downstream, but it's certainly an area where Indonesia needs a, a modern company to do a lot of um, work. But two points about these companies. Astra was a professional outfit when many others just lived off favours in the Saharo era. And Indofood lived off favours in the Saharo era, but turned itself into a professional company at the same time. I think there's a lot of lessons in those two companies for, for, country, for, for, for companies in other parts of the world, particularly China, where those same sort of issues are, are evident. Now, are these uh, countries really models? They don't shout it from the rooftop. It's not the Asian way. And the recipient countries aren't acknowledging this either. You know, Asia is a sort of a, a region of old rivalries, proud cultural heritage, and, um, and there's a quick resort to nationalism in democracies and authoritarian regimes alike. But there are interesting developments. Um, Korea's development model has been well known, sort of you know, heavy state intervention, but a sort of aspirational entrepreneurial sort of corporate culture. Um, but now that Korea's a big aid donor as part of the OECD, it really does seem to be trying to promote this model. It's established several um, programs in recent years to get people to come to Seoul and, and, and study the model. The Korean Development Institute runs courses attracting students from around the world. Um, it's got a public diplomacy program. Um, brings in ministers and bureaucrats from around the region. The um, economist recently uh, quoted a KDI um, uh, spokesman saying that the way to help a country is not only to give money but to share experiences. And uh, there's Cambodians, Vietnamese, Indonesians, Bangladeshis, Mongolians, um, all studying the Korean model now through the KDI. Um, even uh, supposedly people from the Central, Af uh, Central Asian republics. This sort of development tourism is about promoting the economic growth model in Korea. It's not clear how much they talk about their um, previous sort of political traje trajectory, but um, the Korea does have a story to tell in that area. Indonesia, on the other hand, has been really actively promoting its sort of political model through President Yudha Yono's annual democracy forum in Bali. Last week, he invited Julia Gillard there to sort of follow in the footsteps of Kevin Rudd. The forum's been running since 2008. It underlines Indonesia's sort of coming out as a regional power and, um, and indeed as a world sort of player under SBY following its economic recovery. It also really marks Indonesia's confidence that it's overcome the threat to its very existence from Islamic terrorism over the past decade. SBY didn't uh, sugarcoat the challenges uh, that Indonesia's faced in his speech last year to a gathering that had eight heads of state and 82 representatives from other countries. He said, based on our own experience in Indonesia, it is safe to assume that in the early years things will be more difficult before it gets better. Without in any way sounding pessimistic, it must be said that there is no guarantee of success for any country embarking on political change. Now, it's quite ironic that Indonesia is lecturing other countries about democracy um, because it's not long ago that the representatives of 